Welcome to all you guys, gals, and non-binary pals. This is Scarecrow Radio. I'm Ben. I'm Darcy. Coming up on this week's show, our video store day interview with independent filmmaker Mark Borchard about his film Coven and the Dundee Project. But first, Sage is back to continue our series of discussions on the films of Kelly Reichardt. This week, we give our take on Reichardt's 2013 thriller Night Moves, starring Jesse Eisenberg, Dakota Fanning, and Peter Sarsgaard as environmentalists who had to plan to blow up a hydroelectric dam in Oregon. Night Moves is one that I think, like every time I I tell someone, it it goes with River of Grass and I'll bring up Kelly Reichardt and then I'll say, well, have you seen, you know, Night Moves? And it's always no, like with a new person that I bring up Kelly Reichardt with. It's it's almost, I'm I'm not going to say always, but it's almost always no. And they've never heard of it before. Um, And I think it's really interesting and like a different direction for Reichardt, but she's got like, again, like there are those, those elements of um, we don't get a grand climax. Uh, we don't, it's kind of this like slow kind of churning to the end and there's no big moment for us to feel super satisfied by. It all kind of just almost, I don't want to say sputters out, but it's very intentional on her part. It's, it's, it's just kind of like a slow draw to, to the end. Um, and she and there's so much tension throughout, but that tension is never. It's just so it's so unlike what I usually see in in other thrillers. Yeah, I think the reason that I hadn't watched it yet was because it's a thriller, and I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's like completely. I don't know. Does it seems weird for a Kelly Reichardt film? And I was like, I don't know if I'm in the mood for a thriller, you know. Um, so for me personally, that's why I put it off. But then when I watched it, it was so cool to see like she still had that like characters coming in and out you know, a little speck in time kind of thing that she does, um, which is actually so cool for a thriller like that. Um, but yeah, it's all about the tension, which was Ugh. really well done. Yeah. Uh, just even the scene where they're trying to buy the soil and like yeah. uh, when um, Peter Sarsgaard's character tells Dakota Fanning's character that uh, she should go back inside because it looks weird to just disappear. And I, mean, I was like, wow, what is this like... I was like, this is either setting something up or this is like a very good plan. Or like, I couldn't tell, like, I couldn't tell who was really in charge at any given time. I think trying to figure all of that out and knowing where all these characters are coming from and the way that like she like kind of slowly tells us a little bit more about everybody. You find out that he's been arrested before. You find out that she's, you know, maybe comes from money. Uh, I just, mm-hmm. I love the doling out of information in this movie. Um, yeah, I love that moment as well when they're trying to buy the, uh, the fertilizer for the uh, to create the bomb and and yeah that moment where he says you know you got to go back in that's um like not going back in that's how you get remembered yeah. out here because uh, there's not much going on and that's super suspicious <laughs> so, yeah i love that too and also um i think his name's harman peter yes. sarsgaard his comment when they like initially meet and they're taught like they're talking about the boat which is of course named night moves and um He's kind of inspecting it and uh, asks about how they bought it. He doesn't ask about how much it was until later. Um, and then he finds out it was thousands of dollars, you know, 10 grand. But um, at first, they say they paid for it in cash. And Dakota Fanning is, you know, kind of playing it cool. Like, oh, yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I gave them my ID and my credit card number. And all like, no, duh, I paid them in cash. And um, Harmon's just like, cash the poor people's money. <laughs> What'd you guys make of that? 
I wasn't sure because I was actually confused at first. I was like, am I missing something here? No, Um, I think about that all the time. I've long subscribed to a theory that like the reason that you would move uh, most people's money into like digital accounts is that you know, it, it keeps other, it keeps people who don't have access to this, sorry, it keeps people who don't have access to those things out of it. And so the only way that some people can function in this world and buy things is cash. The thing that I guess confused me about what he said about that was, um, he didn't know till later is 10 grand, but like 10 grand in cash, like, that's like crazy. <sighs> sure. Um, cause usually yeah. people have an excess of cash. That's also when you get a bank account to, sure. to you know, keep track of your money. Um, so I think that's why I was yeah. confused by the comment. Mm-hmm. And in, but initially, when he meets them, he doesn't know she's rich. Yeah. And so his immediate assumption is, oh, you bought this with cash. That's poor people's yeah. like poor people's money. You must be poor. That's his initial assumption. And then later, when he learns that it was ten grand, it's like for us too. It's this moment of wow, this person has a lot of money. Um, and but she's kind of she's in this world of like underground and she is trying to play it pretty cool like throughout and not like reveal that she um is of another like she's on another level of wealth but she's trying to play this in this other arena i thought that was really interesting her character and then of course after the fallout of the that i think d uh her name's d i think her character was the most interesting oh to me. yeah um, absolutely I, and um, that she's what I liked most about the movie. And so after the fallout, she immediately starts, we, we start seeing her itch and we, we learn about her stress and how she gets that rash from her stress. And I think that that's such a, like a good detail uh, about, about her character and this, this manifestation of, of guilt and her finally realizing like there are consequences to actions. Like you may, you may like the idea of activism and um activism in so many ways is like really important but also you have to think about what you do you know and like the potential consequences of those things and are you ready to to live with those things and she wasn't yeah that scene in the truck when uh what's his name when josh picks her up and kind of you know flashes the truck lights at her and she's like hey i thought we're not supposed to be talking and she kind of like starts to crumble there and he's like what did you think was going to happen yeah and you realize that i don't know if any of these people thought about that before what was going on i mean maybe he did he's coming from that place i think in saying that but i mean i don't think he thought they were going to accidentally kill someone okay and so uh, before we go further did they kill that guy yeah that is okay because uh i i couldn't tell in the uh the newspaper article like when he goes to the library i was reading that really really fast and kind of like skip through it and i couldn't tell if they had like flat out said that he died that way well i think what they had said was he was camping downriver yeah. um, and so the water um, okay. probably it implies that he was drowned or okay. something in the i caught in the article that it actually said he is survived by oh, okay. blank okay so he it, he is definitively dead yeah yeah because so the ending is sort of ambiguous in that we don't know the fates of all the characters. I mean, is that too much to say on this? Not at all. We know it of some of them, but not all of them. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess I, I think I was like waiting to find out if they were going to tell us more with that. And so the ending comes and I, I don't know, can we talk about that ending? Like it is, what do you think Kelly Rickman's trying to say with that? I don't know if she was trying to say anything. I think it was literally just like 
um, this is what's happening, and we don't know what's going to happen next. Okay. Like he 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 maybe doesn't even have a plan, and I couldn't tell if like um, it was implying like he's doing something stupid because he's still kind of out of it, or if he is actually going to go into this life working at this outdoor store. Yes. Okay. Um, like I think we're not supposed to know. Okay. I. I... I loved that about it, but also, I don't know, at the same time, I'm like, I was watching like five movies in a row yeah. smashed together, so I didn't have time to like super reflect on it. But yeah, I, I don't know. I, that ending killed me. I had loved the way it just dropped. Oh, yeah. I love the ending too. And like the moments, like when he looks at the job application, the mirror, obviously the final shot of the, um, the corner mirror, but that application shot where he's just, he's not writing anything down. He's just thinking about all of the implications of, of what he's about to do there, if he should, because that means he is documented. Like, he, he is now anchoring himself somewhere and, like, you know, filling out a job application. I already find <laughs> terrifying for, like, I don't know, just filling out forms in general, but putting all this personal information about yourself on a form and then offering it up to someone for analysis and judgment and for him it's i'm trying to get out like i'm trying to disappear i just got rid of i just put various parts of my phone in different cars and i'm trying to totally disappear forever because i i'm not going to spoil it but i just did this horrible thing and yet he's going to apply for a job where he'll have to that puts him on the map and like, who basically is, who am I? Am I going to go by a fake name? How do I do that? Because they have to do, they're going to do a background check. I don't have all that figured out. Um, so it's very much, what do I do? How do I survive now? Um, I, I, like, what does it mean to disappear? And I, I think that that is so fascinating. I yeah. think a bad movie would have had another half hour tacked on right there. Yeah. Like, like a, a film from a, like a lesser filmmaker would have we would have found more rise and fall uh, or I guess more of the fall, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Just where it cuts is so, yeah. Oh man. I, I loved that ending so much. I think that Josh's happy ending is like getting that job and working a dead end job like that for the rest of his life. Yeah. But I don't think he's going to get that job. I don't either. <laughs> yeah. I, I just mean that like, that's, yeah, that's right. his best possible outcome. For that job. Yeah. I don't think apply yeah he needed to get rid of his card too i don't know what he's thinking about that yeah <laughs> i also love when interviewers try to pin kelly reichardt down on like a message uh it is so fun to read those interviews where she, like those be like so what are you saying about environmental activism in this movie what is the message right and then they'll like really try to get her to to say <laughs> and she's just like of course okay you know of course they're there are political things in her movies. Like, it's, it's not like she's not saying anything, but that's not, um, like, her main focus. She starts out probably, you know, she's talked about how she starts out with those larger ideas, and then she, as she writes the script, it becomes about the characters, and those characters play out those things, but they're not vessels for, you know, these, these moral messages or anything like that. Um, and so especially with, with Night Moves, I've noticed in interviews with her, it'll, you know, interviews, interviewers will be asking her about the message and she'll just go, um, my movies aren't message films, they're character films. And, um, and she'll have to like, sometimes it's multiple times in the same interview, she'll have to say like, these characters happen to be political. And, um, and then if you'll just come back again with like, but what does it mean? What does it all mean? It's, it's really, 
it's really great to read those with her because she's just not having it. Uh, and I think it's great. Uh, there's a scene right after they they get back into town, or I, I guess they're starting to go back to normal life. Uh, they go to work on Monday morning, I think, as they put it in the film. Uh, and Josh is sitting amongst the people who uh, live in the commune with him, and uh, they discuss. Um, it's like I guess whomever is like the leader of that is discussing how like yeah that's just a stunt like this doesn't solve anything and I loved that scene to just like sort of muddy the water of like is this movie trying to say something or is it not yeah. and, and like what is yeah I I was never like concerned about what it was trying to say I I just love those characters so like it's it's cool to hear you say that yeah it's great um, I've never been a big Jesse Eisenberg fan but. Um... Yeah, and he, he certainly wasn't, like I said, he wasn't my favorite part of this movie. I think Dakota Fanning was the best part of the movie. But I think that this role was good for him, like what he does best, which is, you know, look really tight and stoic and angry. Yeah, from the opening shot, uh, or well, his first shot anyway, just like staring at the water. Oh, that the, the opening shot of that pipe, just like, oh, it's, it's so, so cool. Yeah. I could imagine just seeing that in real life for the first time and then going like, I think I'm gonna make a movie just based on this shot. And Oh good, yeah, I love that too. And that, um, I think it's in Southern Oregon where they are. And they're like, there's that conversation at one point, uh, Harmon brings up Bend, yes. Oregon. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Bend. I, I've been there several times and it's, you know, high desert. And Harmon's, he's got this like anger in his voice when he's talking about it and he's just like there are golf courses there like where's the water and so like from both of them both of those uh characters both Harmon and josh make me incredibly uncomfortable like they are so, like they have so much anger in them and i like most of the time i can't tell if they're like they're just angry people and they've decided this is where their anger is going or if they're actually angry about the things that they say that they care about. Yeah. I think also I would watch a movie that was just about Logan Miller and Alia Shawkat's characters just hanging out on that farm. Oh, yeah. Like that one, there's like one or two scenes that we get of them just like kind of goofing and they're talking about nothing. But like, I would totally watch, I would watch a 90 minute movie about the two of them. Yeah. <laughs> the aura thing was a fun, yeah. like, it's uh, like, hey, Josh, can I read your aura? <laughs> so angry looking. I also really loved the, uh, so uh, what'd you do last night in Portland? Uh, oh, it was just like a night in Portland. Uh, it's just like, I've I've definitely had that conversation before. Like, you know, like coming back from Portland. What'd you do? Uh, I just went to Portland. I don't know. <laughs> it's, so, it's such like an easy, like, you don't really have to say more than that. You could get into, you know, anything just going on that trip. So the, that lying moment that he had, it's that the beginning of more and more lies and, and what like lying about your life lying about what you've done who you are how that affects a person include like we see that with d and um how she needs to talk she she has to like she's calling people and she's not counting out talking to the police she really needs to let that out but jesse eisenberg you know we see with that you know like well i was just in portland and then he goes a step further and says you know i stayed with a friend and it, you, you know, you start to he starts to build this lie. Yeah, he says I stayed with a friend who was new in town. Even I was like, oh wow, he's really trying to cover bases here. Yeah, and so and so like how at what point does your whole life like that takes over your your life um, when you're you're just 
all right, he's starting down that road. He's just going to have to live a lie for the rest of his life if he wants to stay out of trouble, but it's only going, I mean, look what it led to in the movie, just like pinting all of that up. So I think that that's another really interesting thing going on too. Night Moves, as well as the rest of her filmography, is located on the Kelly Reichardt shelf in the director's section. Coming up next, Darcy and I interview Mark Borchard for this year's Scarecrow Video Video Store Day Telethon. Mark is an independent filmmaker known for his 1997 short film, Coven. His most recent work, The Dundee Project, is a documentary about a UFO festival near his home in Wisconsin. Hey Mark, how you doing? I'm doing well, man, and thanks to you guys, I'm doing even better. So at Scarecrow, we have something called the Psychotronic Challenge. Are you aware of that? I am now. So basically, uh, it's a, a challenge to, to fans of Scarecrow to uh, watch 31 films from the Psychotronic Room at Scarecrow in October. Um, and today's is Video Store Day. And so the challenge is to watch, uh, to rent something from a video store. Uh, and we were just wondering, like, do you have access to one where you're at? Uh, yes and no. There's a video store, River West Film and Video, in Milwaukee, right down the street. And um, it's, a, it's a yes and no question, and potentially I see where this is leading. So that will determine the uh, outcome of that uh, binary proposition. Oh, I was just curious. Um, I just like video Okay, well, then I'm off the hook. Yeah, we've got to... <laughs> yes, yes, you're off the hook. Yeah, I was hoping, yeah. Uh, no, 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 no. We, hey, my man. See this right here? This is this is the radio station where the um, video store, uh, the radio station emanates from the video store, River West Film and Video, and it's gotcha. River West Radio. I do a uh, show cinema tonight on Monday nights on it. So yeah, we have a great, beautiful video store uh, here in Milwaukee. And the uh, thing of it is, of course, is with the virus, that put the kibosh on, um, you know, uh, regular activities. Uh, yeah, browsing a video store is like, it's going to a museum for me. So I, I, I feel for everyone that doesn't have access right now. And I'm very grateful. I say this all the time to people who come in that I'm just so grateful that I've been in Scarecrow for like the last six months. Like that's all I've been doing really. Well, anyway, the, so the challenge for today is this, um, is video store day. And, uh, I think I was going to ask, so you have access to one. Um, do you rent stuff still? I mean, would you be renting stuff if well, you, First off, well, first off, you can't, obviously, because of the yeah. virus. But uh, second of all, I've been renting from River West Film and Video for years. But you got to understand, man, I've got hundreds of VHS tapes, DVDs, uh, you know, on the uh, Internet, everything. So there, there's no stopping, plus all of the years of renting. So, I mean, you're talking about a massive accumulation of watched films. Uh, you have VHS and DVD, you're saying? Are, are you a former oh, yeah. at all? Uh, hell yeah, I got VHS. Got a lot of VHS, got a lot of DVD. Stacks of them, man. I have a copy of um, Coven on VHS on me right now. Darcy, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> it's Scarecrows, but it felt really cool to pull it off the shelf and be like, it exists on VHS. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, because we, we started filming that in, um, I remember I started writing it in like December of 93. And we started filming in May of 94 and finished filming, I think, in early 97. So thanks for having that VHS. Mm-hmm. You're, are you still writing Coven 2? Yeah, it's just a process. It's, I do a lot of different um, screenplays, a lot of different films, you know, because I'm, I'm doing, you know, I've got to get this film done by the end of the year, and I've shot all this, uh, all this other stuff, too. So it's like an ongoing thing. It's not just like, um, oh, I'm doing this and that. It's 
it's just a it's a wealthy tapestry of projects. Uh, on IMDb, it says uh, in production you have a film called Scare Me. Is that actually the more the scarier six? No, no, no. One has nothing to do with the other. Um, the more the scarier six is what we're trying to finish by the end of the, of the year. We were actually just fin uh, filming recently, and you know, I'm editing as we're going along, and you know, it's you know, obviously you have to spend a number of days when people are available filming and then with the editing and so forth. So, um, so we started the more scarier six last year, we filmed the majority of the uh, major scenes. And so it kind of, we got that stuff done before the virus. So I, there's a lot to edit. What are some of your favorite Halloween flicks? Some of my primary interests are um, terror films or horror films that take place on American soil in the early 70s. Well, actually, you know what? I mean, horror basically begins like in 1895, truly when that train races toward the audience member for the first time and they're terrified. So that is truly the definition of horror. You know, they didn't know what's what, having been very extremely new to the, to the cinematic uh, experience in public. And then, um, you know, like Edison, Edison has, you know, his Frankenstein, I think that's from the teens. And then obviously we get obvious choices beginning with uh, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1919 and then you move on to 22 Renault's uh, Nosferatu then you get into um, silent offerings I think some from Universal uh, uh, I don't know which ones they Universal offered at the, at the time but the Hunchback of Notre Dame Phantom of the Opera etc then you get into um, you know from 31 uh, Frankenstein and Dracula and then um, other elements like the mummy and the invisible man, but Universal had a stronghold in the early 30s. And then, um, you know, horror took a different turn with maybe like mad scientists and so forth in the 40s. And science fiction basically uh, dominated in the 50s. And then, you know, you had the emergence of Hammer maybe in the early, early late 50s and AIP doing color horror and renditions of Poe stories and so forth. And then the monsters ended kind of like in the 60s and, and where the, the human being became the monster and that idea reached its apex and I believe it was 71 with Last House on the left and it's uh, uh, further apex in 74 with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And um, so when you ask that question, um, again, I'm searching, well, I mean, I, I really dig like um, the, the uh, worlds of like Andy Milligan and um, Ray Dennis Steckler and and uh, H. G. Lewis and uh, I think it's uh, Ted Mickles uh, and their films and I think some of the standouts are like the incredibly strange creatures that became mixed up zombies, the corpse grinders, the gorgor girls, the gruesome, twosome, the ghastly ones. I like this sub cinema horror where I mean these these are not these are films just regionally made films out of. Uh, you know, the hearts and minds of these uh, particular filmmakers, just, they're just fascinating to watch. Have you been watching horror stuff this October? Yes, that's what I do actually, is that, you know, I run into people on the street, ask them, some people really get into it, some people are almost bewildered at the, at the idea of that, as if it never existed to, to watch horror films and to read horror literature during the haunting season, especially the radio dramas as well. So like from early to mid-September, I'll start and then end in early November and then that'll be it. So I began a prodig prodigious attempt uh, at it since like mid-September this year. I started in mid-September too. My oh, wife really? I, 
Yeah, my wife and I are trying to watch, uh, we have like, it's 31 for Scarecrow. We're trying to do 62. So we gave wow, ourselves a lot. 50 days. I, I don't know. It's, we do 31 every year. So wow. yeah, watched a ton of stuff. I actually watched uh, one that was, takes place in a Zoom meeting last night. Which one is uh, it? Oh, it's called Host. Gotcha. Uh, you may have read about it in, in the New York Times. Uh, it's worth an hour. It's really good. Okay. Um, it, it does a lot with a Zoom call. It's entirely okay. shot with Zoom, so. It's available for us to see? Oh yeah, it's on Shutter. Just get the trial, you know? And it's, uh, we're trying to watch films from as many years as possible, so watching something from 2020 was, I mean, it was like that or the Charles Band stuff that came out earlier this year. I also watched The Dundee Project last night, uh, and Thank that you. is, oh yeah, that is so fascinating. As a person <laughs> who likes UFOs a lot, or, uh, or ufology, and uh, listened to Coast to Coast growing up, it was really cool seeing that. Can you tell us about the making of that a little yeah. bit? Yeah, sure. I didn't really, um, it started, I started this project, the Dundee Project, um, maybe around approximately like 20 years ago or so. I, I don't watch TV or anything like that, but this is like, different life cable was on and all of a sudden there was a show that took place there was an episode of something that took place up in Dundee Wisconsin about these UFO meetings and I says hey you know that's like in my backyard let's just drive up north just a little bit so the, I, I went there and it was just like leaving the big city and going into this wonderland was was incredible and you know I, I'm sure I brought uh, my camera with me the first time and started filming. I didn't have any intent to do anything. I don't even know if I brought the camera the first time, but I subsequently went there year after year after year. And I would just, cause I like, cause I'm in this magical environment. So of course I'm going to start filming. I don't think I necessarily had a film in mind at the beginning, but then uh, consequently through returning, I knew that I, there was a film developing. And so that's what I did. And it was just a great time because instead of, just hanging out and, and, and just talking and talking and talking. I'd go off by myself and start filming, you know, the light on the lake, just that. And I'd take somebody aside and interview them. It was just a really, really fun time throughout the years for sure. But there was no grandiose plan whatsoever at the, whatsoever at the beginning. So how did that end up coming together? Because it, it feels like, it doesn't feel like something that you didn't have planned out. It's, uh, the narration, I think, maybe adds to that part. It's so well-written. Oh, well, first of all, thank you. You know, like I said, I, I do a lot of different things, and everybody has a different psychological temperament, a different outlay of focus, and different uh, intents on, on, on their accomplishments and so forth. So I ran into the found footage guys, uh, Andrew Swanch, the producer of the found footage, or uh, producer of the Dundee Project, and Nick Kruer and Joe Pickett are the ones who run found footage. Those guys know each other. Andrew knows those guys. And they said, hey, we're really interested in what you shot in the footage and so forth. Can you put together a film for us? Because I was going to do it on my own and make more of a feature film rather than a short. And But with all the stuff, I just said, well, okay, I'll, I'll, ultimately I'll get a film for these guys. And that's how it ended up being a short. It's funny you say like about the narration and so on and so forth because, um, you know, I do a lot of writing, do a lot of writing for different projects and all kinds of stuff. But... um Actually, that narration was recorded in the car and was only supposed to be a temporary narration because of the particular beats and the tonal emphasis on certain words. And I wanted more of a melodic uh, a feel to the syntax itself. But so you actually got a work print of that uh, narration and so forth. That was just kind of like a temporary narration in the car. 
but then it was time to get the film out there. So that stayed, that's a behind the scenes artifact right there. Cause you know what people, you know, when you're exposed to anything, you believe that that's its ultimate presentation. And it may have just been a working presentation that just all of a sudden got out there and so forth. So yeah, so that's, so that narration was actually, and the car is actually a good, is a, a good recording studio to do it. But again, you, you, you wanted more of a polished tone to it. But it, I mean, it all worked out well. I mean, like I say, that's just behind the scenes and so forth. And then with UFO Bob, you know, as I started to edit, I realized that he became the dominating principal to this. And then with other adjunct interviewees kind of like assembled on the periphery of his presence and so forth in the editing. So how much time did you spend with UFO Bob? Because he was so interesting. Yeah, well, he had his own thing going on. You know, he, he, he'd be getting drunk as hell and, uh, you know, he'd, he'd love to talk and so forth. So we, we shot a lot of footage with him. And uh, he, UFO Bob was famous up there. He had his followers. You know, he would have communication with uh, the UFOs up in the sky. People would drunkenly trail him. He was like the messiah out there, you know. UFO Bob's wearing a shirt that says Tyranny Response Team on it. And I was wondering if you asked him what his idea of tyranny or what that shirt meant. Was he wearing it or some other guy? I think it was someone else, actually. Yeah. I, I think uh, in a special, in one of the like the extra footage, maybe, there's two people wearing it, and he is one of the people wearing it in okay. that footage. Sorry. Yeah, no, I, I don't get into sociopolitics, so I would I would uh, never ask him what, what that was about. Yeah. Okay, so, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, actually, you know what, too, is that, you know, because people... Everybody's different. There's 8 billion of us. Everyone's different. And people think that when you do something or this or that, it's representative of what you're actually thinking. But a lot of people are just like having an out-of-body experience. And it's just a, it's something that, uh, so it's not like they may not really be into it, but they're into the, not, they're not into the content, but they're into the context of it. So sure. Yeah. yeah as in like, oh, you believe in all this stuff or this? I said, no, man, I'm just filming this dude, you know? So, I mean, you always, there's a reality behind things. And, you know, we, we create fantasies and illusions about people and circumstances. And then there's like, like dismay when the uh, veil is revealed to reveal that it's otherwise. But then sometimes the real reality is even more fascinating than the illusion itself. Okay, that's cool you say that. Because um, the Dundee Project is about a bunch of people who witness UFOs uh, at this festival every year. Um, obviously UFOs are real, but what they are is sort of up to us until we, they are identified. So that's kind of, do you, what do they actually think they are and do you agree with them? Well, I, I don't agree with anybody because everyone, everything, all reality is taking place within your own mind. I mean, that's scientifically, it's not really, ha it's happening in your mind. So there's, and I'll, I'll tell you another thing, what I realized after the film I had, I did not include this other guy who was was a regular visitor on on a ship, and which was a, a really fascinating thing. And uh, I realized that he didn't, uh, for some reason, he's not in the film. But let me ask you this: What do you mean? Do I agree with these guys? Do you think that they are seeing some kind of alien ship or some being from another planet, or are they seeing like a a weather balloon or a satellite passing in the sky, or you know, like? Something that is easily explained, but we choose not to explain it. I guess. No, I don't think they're. I, I don't think they're seeing anything. I think that what there's, it's something psychologically going on, 
within their mind that has found an alliance with the enthusiasm that the, the mass is getting into. Well, actually, the mass up there, they're, they're getting drunk is what they're getting into. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just a, <laughs> you know, that's the way it is. Um, like I said, I think that, you know, that, you know, obviously there's life everywhere out in the universe. I don't think that has anything to do with these drunk dudes, you know, at the lake. So, you know, I think those are two different factors going on. That's fair. I mean, it's like I say, one, one thing doesn't uh, preclude the other. So it's, it's saying that, man, these people are nuts has nothing to do with the scientific fact that there's obviously life everywhere, um, you know, out, out in uh, the universe. So it's, if you don't believe them, it has nothing to do with the, the real rea science, scientific reality of other life. So can I ask you about uh, how you got involved with uh, Joe Para? Actually, well, actually, it's pretty simple. They, they just filmed down the street from where I live. So they just got in touch with me. I mean, I could have literally have walked there. Yeah, it's like, oh, hey, here's this uh, TV show down the street. It's um, just like a, they were filming like a mile or two up or whatever. Oh, no kidding. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah. No, they, they film it in Milwaukee, so. Yeah, that's funny because he went to school. Like, I could have walked to his the school, the college he went to from where I lived growing up. So, um, yeah, anyway. So, uh, that's, I, I just remember you showing up. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's just it's like being in a dream. You assess craft service. You know, you work on your own writing. You know, you don't twiddle your thumbs during downtime. And so, yeah, that's that's how that occurred. Can you talk a little bit to, this is so obvious and loaded, but like the role that movies have played in your life and the importance of keeping physical media around and the accessibility of it? First of all, there's two things that you've asked. Number one, I, I didn't get into, I didn't, never got into what you were talking about. Um, I got into film more from an intellectual uh, entry point. I didn't sit around, I didn't watch TV, I didn't going to fantasy worlds, you know, like other kids going, you know, and stuff like that. And um, two, with the, um, what you're talking about, like books and, and films and albums and VHS and, and, and DVDs. Yeah, that's what people are into. I mean, there's different subsets of culture and so forth. There's people who have a lot and there's people, there's minimalists who, who literally have nothing, man. If you go into a minimalist, minimalist person's house, it's depressing, man. It's like it's like a morgue. It's like walking into a morgue, man. I just don't feel comfortable. I mean, I'm like, dude, where's the book? So yeah, <laughs> because when you're curious and you explore, you're alive. But when you're limited, man, you're in the process of always spiritually dying. And uh, you know, and books and and you're well, literature and cinema and music and all that expand the horizons of. The emotions of the intellect of the, of the physical etc cetera, etc cetera, man uh well what are the horror films keeping you alive these days uh i think i'm already mentioned some i'm very was very excited by the corpse grinders i think with hg lewis it's interesting because he never seems to have any interest in exploring cinematic form of advancing his craft or anything like that it kind of he just is documenting a, a, a lot of bad performances, but I mean, his, his films are gold. H.G. Lewis's films are gold um, and they're, they're culturally gold and everything like that. But from a cinematic standpoint, you know, you take somebody like um, who made the corpse grinders and you know, there's cinematic intent in it. There's understanding of uh, options and the way you film uh, you set up scenes and you kind of like explore film in an experimental and rewarding form. So, the corpse grinders rises above 
other films of that sub-cinema genre, era of, of, of horror and so forth. Um, I mean, I don't even, I mean, the films of, uh, I mean, obvious things like uh, films of Polanski and the Palma and Cronenberg, I mean, in a more contemporary realm. And um, again, like I said, filmmakers that I listed. And then, um, you know, a lot of the silent ones by, uh, like I say, Murnau and that, or, or like Faust and, I mean, you can go on and on to German expressionist films and so, and obviously uh, Carl Dreyer's uh, Vampire is just one of the most, the most beautiful art horror film, um, definitely. So, but I guess what's, uh, as you say, keeping me uh, alive and curious is anything I can find from uh, like uh, modern horror from 67 to 76 is what I'm looking for this year. And 76 ends, interestingly, with, um, uh, with the Incredible Torture Show from 76, which is a great, great um, innovative horror film that Lloyd Kaufman retitled. And um, then Eaten Alive, Toby Hooper, is uh, kind of weird to see some sort of uh, distant cousin of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre in 76. So 76 does, uh, is, is, a, is a good year from, for, uh, for horror in that way, in that interesting way. Yeah, dang. I need to go back. I feel like so much of the horror that I watch is still just the 80s stuff that I rent, uh, still try to watch on VHS when I can. But um, yeah, I feel like I need to dig more into earlier stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's all out there for sure. Yeah, and we certainly have access to it at Scarecrow Video. That's a pitch for the store, everybody. Uh, Mark, where do you watch all these usually? Like, is this your own collection? I watch it in the crib, man. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't like doing things. I don't like going places. I mean, once I'm there, it's fine. But you know, I start my days early and then pass out at night, just, you know, doing your life work throughout the day. So there's been nothing more pleasurable this last half year than just staying inside and uh, if trying to see a, a film at night. It's, it's, just, been, it's just been fantastic. The peace of mind, the productivity of these last six months. I mean, I almost want to cry. I can't believe it. And, um, you know, that social distraction has been eliminated and will be eliminated for quite some time. And, I mean, I just can't believe it because it, to be given your life back, to be able to work unencumbered morning, noon, and night, it's, it's, it's I, can't, I can't even believe it. I'm, I'm in toxic shock from dealing with events and people for over half a century now that my, my, body and mind can't even believe being finally free and the, these last six seven months make me want to cry of the, with the with the peace the productivity that i've never experienced before uh, in life i'm not trying to keep from weeping here no <laughs> um but i'm 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 just i just can't i just can't believe we've we've been given two years of of peace and productivity um i mean i i did be getting older going through the years, I did have the ability to really say no. I can, I can say no really well now, which did earn time, but the decimation uh, uh, that, of, of uh, social distraction, it, it's costly. It robs you of maybe 20% of your thinking of your time. And then you have to think about where you got to park and oh, I got to do this. I got to do that. It's like, Oh my God, all of that. Is, is now been disseminated and it's just like they're decimated and uh it's like now man you're, you're like four years old man i got my life back finally okay cool that's so yeah i'm wow yeah wow
again, everyone experiences it different. So that's, you know, I'm not, you know, everyone's got their own thing. I mean, I agree to an extent. I mean, like just having time to watch stuff all the time is like outstanding, but I am certainly not, uh, have not been as creative as you. Uh, it sounds like you're thriving through all of this. Yeah, I'll say we're, we're like about seven months into this. I, what I've accomplished more in those seven months than any other seven months of my life. And we, we have about 17 more months potentially to go. And that's 17 more months of, of work that will never, I, I hope just that it can, can, you know, that the work can continue, continue to be accomplished like this, but yeah, this has been truly amazing. So do you think you'll be shooting anything during in this? Like, do you find oh, dude, your, uh, oh man, what are you talking about? I was, we were just filming a couple of days ago. When you die, dude, you ain't going to come back to see no sun on a shining mountain. Or if you're lucky, man, you believe in reincarnation, you, you probably come back as a grasshopper. But if, most likely, man, you die, and it's like, damn, it's dark in here, man. So my high advice to you, man, is do everything you can, man, while you're on two feet. Well, hell yeah, we're shooting. We just shot two days ago, my man. Uh, what are the challenges of doing that during quarantine, though? That's what I was going to ask about. Oh, well, obviously you can't, you can't, you have to do it safe. So you're the, of, of people speaking together or physically being together, it ain't going to happen. But just fortunately, just from this particular vantage point, we already shot those scenes. You know, and so, plus also the beauty of what's outside in the world, you can make films for the rest of your life about that. You know, you do your music beautiful leaves, snow, tree, it's just, it's endless. It's endless. It's, you just, all you gotta do, you got two years to do it a little, to do it differently. Then you can go back to doing it the same way a couple years from now. So are you writing stuff that is about right now or are you writing stuff? Oh, no, no, I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't have time or interest in, in writing about anything, what's, what's going down right now because of all the projects over the years are, are, um, I don't know. Can, can you see those legal pads behind yes. me? Yes. Yeah, I was wondering about those. Yeah, those are all, those are, well, there's a lot, there's boxes of legal pads. So you're not seeing all the legal pads, but those are all like scripts and projects and so forth. And there's in, but they're, they're, they're also in boxes too. I just had that. I think it starts, the top one starts in 2006 and then it's going to go down to 2021. So each year our legal pads and the, the blank spaces are, are in storage boxes. So I got to get those up there. So yeah, that's, I ain't got the time for here now, man. I got, I got, I've got responsibility yeah. for those behind me. How do you prioritize which ones um, to act on? Uh, it goes, it's what I psychologically feel at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and it changes with the seasons and so forth. And now, cause when it starts to get November, I've got, I'm working on the suspense film. And when I say working on it, I've actually done, I mean, you know, and then you type all of the, the notes, the scripts, and there's hundreds of pages of suspense film and then a film on theater. So that's, I know uh, that's what I'll be uh, working on those scripts. And actually, when I, I'm, without getting into detail, I had to like go hardcore, you know, doing other stuff for other people, like scripts, this, that, the other. I had to go hardcore this summer, one morning after another with all these screenplays, got those done. Now, while filming and editing, trying to get a couple more full-length screenplays uh, done this season, but we'll see. But yeah, I mean, always like the, it's you not know, like some dude with a pipe looking up at the sky saying, yeah, I want to write this screenplay. I mean, most of the work's done. It's just the, the keep putting it together to keep polishing and so forth. So, it's, you know, it's the antithesis of pipe dreams. 
the man, those legal pads, if you drop them on your foot, man, you probably break a toe. I mean, I guess I know what the answer to this is, but for someone who's interested in filmmaking, I would assume you're going to say just get on your feet and grind. Um, is there any anything else to it? Yeah, absolutely. Because the real reality of it is, is potentially you're going to find yourself in the void. You're going to find yourself that you're the sole person with your need to make this work. And everybody else is like, man, what are you talking about? And that's the void because if you go balling, everybody's on the same page. You know, everyone's laughing and bowling and bowling and that. But you say you want to make a work of art. They're like, what are you talking about? So that's the void. And that crush you, man, if you don't know how to handle it. So I'd be getting with like-minded people who appreciate, respect, and acknowledge what you're doing. I'd be studying. I'd be hitting those books, man, because the more you read, the more that becomes, whatever you put in you becomes your reality. And then you can fight the forces of indifference, and then you ultimately conquer the forces of indifference. So you saturate yourself like a heavyweight champion, like an athlete, like a, like a, um, an author who writes seven days a week, man. They're, nothing's going to change them. Nothing's going to change them. And they saturate, they learn, they study, they think, they surround themselves, you know, with, with people with the same agenda. So that's important, man. So you're not like, what am I doing out in this lonely sea? I don't even see the shore at this point. You know, you can't be doing that. You can't, you know, you got to end up being the leader of your own life. You can't be a secondary character on the stage of your own existence, man. You can't do that. So this is your one opportunity. So you have to empower yourself, empower your beliefs, um, saturate yourself with the necessary knowledge, all of that stuff. And it, then it becomes your reality. You habituate yourself, you acclimate yourself to your, to your needs, your desires, and so forth, and it'll get done. We need to talk about the more scarier just for like two minutes, because you know what? I, it's like, man, I did all of that talking and didn't even discuss the more scarier six. And I want to say that like when somebody presents something, you know, there's always the uh, fanfare of publicity, and that's sole purpose is to attract as many clients to your work as possible. And a lot of these, a lot of the publicity is hyperbole. It's obviously exaggerated, but again, it's just to garner attention. So if someone makes a, a new film, since we're talking about film, doesn't mean, oh my God, I can't wait to see this and that. And somebody, the filmmaker might be just saying, hey, look, man, this is just something that I was interested in writing. I'm not here to take over the world with the, or that. And it, so like with The More the Scarier Six, it's kind of like a intellectually abstract horror film. And when I say intellectually abstract, is that the, the abstract means that there's not an alliance uh, typically with a, a concrete value. You know, it's abs like abstract expressionism. You know, there's no figurative alliance. And so with this film, it's having fun with melodramatic language because real people don't speak like that, but you buy into it because it becomes the, the world of the film. And the abstract also in the sense that it doesn't necessarily have to be in a coherent line of real reality that other dimensions of artistic impulse can occur on the screen without an allegiance to uh, hardcore narrative intent and so forth. So that's what I mean by that. And also when you, you do horror, you're allowed to explore other dimensions of, uh, of creative impulses and so forth. So there's a reason why it's not, maybe not a person that's interested in horror, but they're interested in the freedom in the exploratory realms that they can venture into. So there's reasons why people do it. It's not like 
somebody's into horror, but they're doing it for a, a psychologically contextual reason. And I just want to say, if, if I may, I just, because we're, we're talking about films and all that stuff, and like, like the more the scarier six, it, it doesn't happen without like uh, people like Tim Hansen and Lila Obergon Wilson and, and Dan and Wright and Corey Bova behind it and Caroline Miller, because I'm doing all the talking, but they're, they're working and, and collaborating and, and doing these things with me. So I just have to uh, say that, man. And I'm very grateful to those guys for sure. And uh, like I said, we'll just keep marching through this autumn, keep marching through the winter and we'll get it done in, you know, you'll be seeing it. So it's the more to scare your six. So I, I appreciate that. We'll make sure we have it on the shelves at Scarecrow when it comes out. That totally. Would, that, would, that would be nice. That, <laughs> yeah. that makes my heart fond of you guys. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Hey, uh, do you want to pitch your show again, your radio show for our listeners? Sure. Uh, my radio show is Cinema Tonight, and it's Monday nights at riverwestradio.com from 6 to 6.30 p.m. Central Time. Well, folks, uh, you can rent Coven and the Dundee Project at Scarecrow Video whenever you want. Uh, the director, Mark Borchard, thank you for joining us today. Hey, guys. Thanks a million and bless your hearts, man. You can find Mark's film, The Dundee Project, in the Psycho Sleeve section and Coven on VHS in the Psychotronic Room. For a link to a video of our Zoom interview with Mark, check out the show notes for this episode. For more information on this year's Psychotronic Challenge, visit Scarecrow.com. If you've been listening to the podcast for the past couple of episodes, you've heard Darcy and I talk, but we haven't really had our own segment yet, and we felt it was time to share our thoughts about the film Honeyland with you. So Honeyland is a documentary that came out in 2019, and it was directed by Tamara Kodovska and Lubomir Stefanov, and it is about a... Um, nomadic beekeeper in Macedonia who collects honey and I was totally blown away by this movie and I just kept encouraging everyone to watch it and everyone who's watched it has loved it it also was up for two academy awards not that those really mean anything but um, it's just shocking to me how few people have seen it considering that it was the first of its kind to be nominated for best documentary and international film Uh, so it's really a great movie yeah and so it's about bees which, uh, so Darcy, I'm one of the people that you tried to get to watch this for some time. And it was months before I actually, you know, like went ahead and watched. I, my feelings of trepidation stem from the fact that I'm terrified of the world losing bees. Mm -hmm. And I really think that the thought of watching like live bees die on a, in film, like I, I'm terrified of watching bees die. I mean, it makes sense. There is, I guess, I'll give a little bit of a warning. There is obviously some animal cruelty. Um, bees die. There's uh, the movie, the, the main conflict in the movie is um, this family moving next door to Hatija, um, who is the main character of the movie. And she lives this really quiet, almost idyllic, but also not idyllic at the same time life um, in this little village with no electricity, just very simple life, taking care of her dying mother, um, who's in her 80s. And Hatija is like in her 50s, single, they just live in a hut. Uh, but this family moves in next door and they are farmers. And so there is some animal cruelty that comes in with that. They have goats and sheep um, and cows. No, no sheep, goats and cows. So yes, just a, a little warning on that. I have to look away during those scenes. Yeah, oh, that stuff is tough to watch too. 
I was going to say that despite the fact that we do watch so many bees die, I think the point of the movie, though, is that Hataja is saving so many bees' lives. And yeah. that, I mean, the honey that she's, be able, she's able to make is because she takes such good care of these bees. Yes. Um, yeah, so uh, I would guess I would say, like, to anybody who maybe also is feeling that way, this is an excellent movie. Like, it, it is... I, I was blown away by it. I, it's also, I mean, the the way it was made, there's never a hint that you're watching a documentary, really. I literally thought when I started watching it the first time, um, the cinematography in it is so good, which is wild because they didn't use any lights. It's all natural lighting um, and candles and oil lamps, fires. Um, but it was so good that I literally was like, there's no way this is a documentary. And I had to stop and like double check. Like, yep, it's a documentary. It completely cinema verite, like there's no interviews, there's no interference. It's just three years of the filmmakers filming Hataja. They didn't set out to film her taking care of her bees or the family that came in with that conflict. It was actually supposed to be about the region that she lives in. Uh, but then they met her and started to document her life. Um, but then this family moved in and created a bunch of conflict, um, which the movie just beautifully goes over. There's also, they explore the relationship between her and her mother who, spoiler, passes away towards the end. It's just totally beautiful and like oh. the arc of it is amazing it just yeah. starts out with Hataja living her life you know her her whole mantra is uh I take half I leave half for the bees mm-hmm. um which is exactly what the family that moves in next door doesn't listen to but they're just victims of capitalism because they're being pressured to um take more than half of the bees honeys and too early in the season um in order to make money to survive so there is also a bit of a critique on that I don't know where I was going with all this. Oh, okay, but that's the thing about this movie is that there are so many levels yes. that it's very easy while talking about it to go off on a tangent because, yeah, like I was about to like say, like agree with you, like her, how does her relationship with her mother and the way she takes care of her and like the love, I mean, it like oozes off of the screen. It's so lovely and beautiful. Mm-hmm. And, and like you're saying, like the way it's shot adds to that. And like, I mean, it's like these two people living in a hut in complete darkness with like a candle. That stuff's beautiful. But then in this movie about that, which is also about bees and there's this like anti-capitalist thread yeah. that uses a real life example. Like, I mean, it's present, it's omnipresent in this movie now. Um, but, but also um, I like the farmer next door, it's like, that is like the ultimate mansplain. Yeah, yeah like, that's true. It's like a personification of mansplaining. Yeah. Uh, but again, like, it's just like, there's so much to this movie. It's like, it feels so simple, but it's very complex. It's interesting you said that he's advanced fighting because I actually feel like he knew what he was doing was wrong because at first he was hesitant to um, take the bees honey too early. But then because he had to, he just basically lied to make up for the fact that he was taking the bees honey. Um, and also part of the movie is that then his bees attack um, Hataja's and then hers die and she has to go relocate her hives which is just so hard. And also the farmer next door has a child who Hataja kind of takes in, not takes in, but like mentors to an extent. Um, he's also feeling ostracized by his family. So she kind of becomes a figure in his life um, and she's teaching him how to respect the bees. And then that kid then goes to his dad and is like, you're not doing what Hataja is saying. He's like, well, don't talk to Hataja anymore. All these themes also lead so far into conservationalism, which is really cool. Like the anti-capitalism aspect of it is, oh, he's meddling with the bees, honey, and hives in order to make money. But maybe if he didn't have to do that, the natural balance wouldn't be thrown off. 
Oh my god, also, the scene where she goes um, into the city and gets her hair dye, and, like, all the people are talking oh. to her, they, they can tell, like, she's cute and, like, from a village. Oh, yeah, they all seem so, oh, that scene is so lovely. Yeah, I love all of her interactions in the city, and when she goes yeah. to try to sell, like, her wares to everyone, yeah. well, the bees wares, the honey, uh, and just, like, the way she talks about her honey to everyone, I don't know, there's something just so lovely about the way she interacts with other people throughout yeah. the entire thing, even when she's upset with people, there's a way that she handles herself and, and conducts, just, like, gets her point across, it, it's so yeah. good, I, oh, man, uh, what, like, a lovely, I keep using that word, just, like, a lovely human being, though, yeah. she really is. I was watching an interview with her earlier, um, and, like, it's, like, common knowledge that, that like, the directors um, purchased her a house um so because her mother died and she didn't really know what she wanted to do so now she doesn't have to live in this like hut anymore basically um yeah. but i was watching this interview with her and it was bef- when she knew she was getting the house but hasn't moved in yet and she just like was so giddy about it and like had the cutest little smile <sighs> and was just like no no person should go without a home and then she's just like smiling so big and it's just so nice also i feel like i remember when she went to the oscars and all these celebrities were trying to take pictures with her which is also, she probably has no idea who these people are. For sure. <laughs> she probably doesn't care. She literally, I mean, she has no access to Hollywood film. Yeah. She's not reading Variety or anything. Yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> I think uh, going back to like some of the storylines in this, mm-hmm. I think a thing I really love too is that it's like you're saying, they didn't set out to make this specific film. It's entirely organic. Yeah. Everything that comes up is just what happened. And, and they were just there to capture it. And it's like their ability to capture it is what really keeps this movie going. Like the way it's shot too, like you were saying, going back to, I think that's one of the first things you said, how did they set up those shots? Like did, I think about that the entire time I'm watching it, how did they frame that? How did they get at, like that angle when she's climbing on the rock, like the opening yeah. scene, climbing on rocks to, to get to these, uh, the hives? How did they shoot that? The one that really sticks out to me is the one where her mom is in complete complete darkness saying she needs water and Hatija hasn't gotten there yet. So they are able to capture the light coming into the room. So I'm curious, like, was the DP just like, I hear something might happen, so I'm just going to go huddle up in the corner? Because I did read that um, they said 95% of it was, you know, not staged at all, obviously. Um, they said they did the one thing that they did have to, that they created for the documentary was the family moving in next door shots because the family moved in, but they weren't there to capture it. So they had to get some shots of like, just to add some context of it. Um, But that means that all these other shots were not set up. So like, I I just don't really understand it. (laughs) It's some of the most beautiful imagery I've ever seen in a movie. And to know that they did that without any setup is like so wild. And it also just shows like using what nature gives you, how beautiful that can be and not having to replicate stuff, which is a theme of the movie. So yeah. It's really cool. Oh, it's incredible. I, I don't, there's like no weak element in this entire movie. Everything is so perfectly well done and balanced. It's it's such an enjoyable watch, despite being about something that, again, I feel is like very difficult for me to, to, watch, to witness. Like it's very tough, but just proof that sometimes like sticking with something is you get an experience that you didn't really expect. I, that's what I yeah. love about this. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I do I understand the hesitation people had and I actually had hesitation too because like sometimes it's like I don't this is like bad to admit on here but some days I don't want to watch a movie that I have to read subtitles because it's too much energy um sure. so for a while I was like oh it's that plus a movie about bees and I was like I don't 
care that much about bees besides that yeah it's like upsetting but I was like what about this movie like speak to me and then I finally watched it and was like oh my god like I should not have waited on this shout out to Jay Kalis for making me watch it by the way so. and shout out to you for making me watch it <laughs> it's so good I, I mean I don't know if I would have ever watched it I knew that I understood the accolades I understood yeah. the importance of it being nominated for those two specific Oscars at the same time uh you know, I knew people liked it. It just seemed so, such a difficult watch, but it's not. It's, it's so enjoyable. It's, and yeah, stunningly beautiful and real. So yeah. real. Also, there's kittens and puppies. Oh, yes. That's, oh my God. I forgot about there's that a scene where she's like sitting there and she's like trying, I think it's right after her mom dies actually. And she's like sitting alone um, and she's trying to get one of the cats to sit up on her lap. And at that moment, I was actually calling my cat over. He never comes, yeah. but I was like, oh, she's doing the same thing right now didn't even mean i did not plan for that just like the filmmakers did not plan for anything yeah yeah i encourage everyone to watch it who has been waiting on it or who haven't heard who hasn't heard about it we do have it at scarecrow yeah i encourage everyone to check out uh check out honeyland darcy was totally right in making me watch it i'm so glad i did it's a it's a beautiful like just stunningly gorgeous movie absolutely worth a rental please check it out and you don't have to like jazz in order to like this B-movie. You can find Honeyland upstairs in the nature section of the documentary room. That's it for this week's episode of Scarecrow Radio. Remember to be kind, always rewind, and return your tapes and discs on time. Scarecrow Radio is the official podcast of Scarecrow Video, located right here in Seattle, Washington. For more information, visit scarecrow.com.